And let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 13. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisle right now with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hand so you can hear the Word and also uh, read the Word. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Paul writes, and he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear uh, false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, uh, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the blessing of being your workmanship, of you working to change not only our outward life, but our, our inward life and who and what we are, conforming everything into the image of Christ. We thank you for how far you've brought us, and we thank you for um, your commitment to bring us all the way in this and we pray, Lord, that the specific aspects of Jesus' life that you want to impart and impact us with today that are found in these verses, that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of our lives and accomplish that. We thank you for the freedom that becomes ours as a result of uh, being conformed into his image, the, the glory, the wonder of the Christian life. And we pray that all of that would continue this morning as we study your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In these verses, Paul continues to do what he's doing in Romans chapter 12 all the way through the end of the book. And that is he is describing uh, the presented life, describing the characteristics of the Christian who has presented their life to God as a living sacrifice and done so in response to all that it is that God has done for us in saving us. Saving us related to the penalty of our past sin, to save us from the power of sin presently, and one day even from the very presence of sin. These are tremendous realities. The three, the three Ps, you know, in terms of the past, the present, and the future on, on the, the, the penalty and the power and uh, the presence of sin, but these realities are just, any one of them is worth a, a lifetime of, of exploring. And all of this is ours in, in uh, the salvation that Jesus has provided to us. And so Paul continues now this describe, a description of uh, the presented life, the living sacrifice, uh, in, uh, chapters, uh, in, in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And he begins by telling us in verse 8, Owe no one anything. Now, when Paul says this in verse 8, it's a transitional statement. It is fully true, but it's not the main point that he's making. He makes it in order to contrast it with uh, what he really wants to say. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's, it's worth examining a, a little bit here this morning. Uh, it, it, to, to, because where he's going in terms of the progression is he's, he's heading into uh, wanting to t talk to us about uh, the debt that we can never repay and, 
and, but this truth that we're to owe, man, owe no man anything, I think is important in our, particularly in our culture, to, to give a moment or two to it this morning. Uh, we, uh, we live in a context of debt in, in this culture. Uh, the the uh, national debt is currently at $22 trillion and counting. And there is still no serious attempt to even stem that bleeding as if uh, somehow a miracle is going to be uh, pulled out, <clears throat> a rabbit out of the hat in our future that is going to somehow m- make that go away. But <clears throat> this is what's modeled even by our federal government and the level of expectation that that we have and the freedom with which we feel uh, without rioting or uh, revolting as citizens over uh, you know, how alarming all of this is, uh, the comfort level that we have with debt that ought to alarm anyone. Uh, you might have uh, read in, in the uh, newspaper this week, <clears throat> excuse me, where uh, the personal credit card debt has now reached a, the highest it's ever reached in United States uh, history, 400, I mean $870 billion now. And, uh, and the comfort that people have with uh, a lot of credit card debt within our culture. Credit card debt is only uh, number four in, in the list in terms of, of personal debt that the average American uh, own, owes. Uh, the number one is uh, home mortgage, number two is student loans, number three is car loans, and, and only after that do you get to a credit card debt. But my point is, is that we live in such a context of, of living in debt as a lifestyle that it's important for us to understand uh, what the Bible says a little bit uh, related to that. The Bible does not uh, out and out uh, prohibit, absolutely prohibit, uh, the borrowing of, of money, uh, though that is, is the personal conviction of, of many Christians. I think of, famously, you think of uh, Hudson Taylor, the, the missionary to inland China, and on the basis of <clears throat> chapter 13, verse 8 here, uh, he made it his personal conviction that he would never, ever uh, go into debt over any kind uh, of, of, uh, of an issue uh, in, in uh, debt in his life. The famous Baptist preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, from years ago in England, he held the exact same convictions as Hudson Taylor on the basis of this verse. He, never, uh, he was determined never to incur any debt uh, in his life. The lending and borrowing is a common in the Old Testament. Uh, there was uh, complete with the charging of interest. Uh, there were prohibitions on uh, charging interest of the poor, and uh, there was a prohibition against uh, charging exorbitant interest on any level, uh, whether a person was wealthy or poor or or whatever their uh, status might be uh, under Old Testament law. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus is teaching of the parables uh, of the talents and of the ten minas. Uh, He did not condemn banking in those parables, and he even recommended the lazy servant that had taken his one talent and had wrapped it up in a napkin and and, uh, buried it. Uh, He commended that he would have been much better off to invest that uh, money in the bank and at least have, have drawn some uh, interest on it to, to offer to the master when he, he returned. I would guess that the average Christian, at least in my experience in the United States, that we consider ourselves to, we wouldn't consider ourselves to be in debt 
if our assets are greater than uh, our, our debts uh, or if we have a certain means of paying off our debts. And so if our, the value of our home is greater uh, than what we have is a mortgage on it, then we wouldn't consider ourselves in debt. Uh, though 2008, 2009 loom uh, in, in, in all of our memories. And, uh, but that's kind of the way that, that we work it. There may be debt in a certain category in life, but overall, financially, uh, there's, there's more uh, of, of value than there is, is uh, of, uh, of debt. But, but the Bible does contain uh, lots of warnings concerning debt. I'd say chief among them is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, where it declares, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Uh, all borrowing, all debt is an obligation to someone else. And, and all debt in our life exists at the expense of our freedom. Somebody else owns a part of us uh, as a result of that debt. I, I know, uh, have known through the years <clears throat> more than a handful of those that have considered them, uh, thought that they were being called by God uh, to be a pastor or to be on a church staff somewhere or to go out into the mission field and uh, they couldn't enter into those callings because of their personal debt, at least until it was uh, resolved. Uh, most people are hesitant to support uh, a missionary out in the field who is, uh, uh, as a part of their expenses, means servicing debt. And, uh, and, and so uh, you know, people will look at it as a lack of discipline, a lack of, uh, of order in other parts of their life, and will be hesitant to support someone like that. Certainly in a church, if you're going to hire a pastor, uh, no church is eager uh, to uh, make as a part of a salary uh, package or something like that, something that's significant enough to now accommodate uh, large debt in somebody's life. And uh, most churches not only won't accommodate that, they don't have the abilities, uh, ability to do that. And so most often missionaries and pastors, they will need to uh, learn the lessons uh, of debt by getting out of it before those positions ever open up to them. But it's not just true of missionaries, not just true of pastors, it's true of every single uh, person. Debt exists at the expense of my freedom, and uh, there is no full and complete independence uh, the, that God wants us to have when, when there is that kind of debt. And the Bible teaches that we should live within our incomes. We certainly should cut off any unnecessary expenses that are a part of our lives um, in order to uh, not go into debt. And certainly we wouldn't want to incur debt as a Christian in order to obtain some non-necessity, some luxury in life. There isn't a luxury in the world that is worth uh, the loss of freedom that debt brings uh, to our lives. And uh, most especially if God wants to call us kind of instantly to take a step of faith for him in some area of calling or shifting or moving. And so these are good things, uh, principles and understandings to have about debt. It's certainly worthy of an in-depth study all on its own in the scriptures. Again, as I say, in light of how accepted the culture is. Me personally, 
I, I, if, I, if I owe someone $5, it hangs over my head. I can't get a good night's sleep. And, uh, but, uh, but the younger the generation gets uh, within, within the nation, the more accustomed every generation has become to debt as a lifestyle. And it's important to at least know this much about, about that from the Bible. Now, uh, let's leave the transitional statement that Paul makes here and, uh, to start verse 8 and get into the main point that he wants to make here in verse 8 and throughout the rest of the uh, the passage, and that is that as Christians, there is a debt that we do owe, and it is the debt that each of us owes to every other single human being in the world. And Paul is telling us, I mean, he's saying it in such, uh, uh, with such clarity uh, that we have a debt that we will never cease to owe, a debt we will never pay off in the course of our lifetime, a debt we will never retire in the course of our lifetime, and it is the debt to love one another, uh, to love our fellow human beings. And this involves loving Christians. Uh, he, he talks about loving one another. He's writing to Christians, but it also, talks, it also includes loving people who don't know the Lord yet, loving non-Christians, and uh, because he talks about loving our neighbor there in verse 10. I think a couple of uh, translations uh, uh, might be helpful other than the New King James. The NIV translates it this way, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Phillips is again very, very helpful here. He absolutely captures the gist of it. He said, keep out of debt altogether except the perpetual debt of love which we owe to one another. Now, when Paul declares that we owe a debt to one another, and we know owe a debt to our, uh, our neighbors and a debt to love them, I think that it raises a question within our minds as we give some consideration uh, to that, and that would be questions like this. Uh, when did I incur this debt? How did I incur uh, this, this debt? Why do I owe this debt to... Uh, love my neighbor as myself, and to love one another. And I think the answer to this is found in, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14 of this very book of Romans, where Paul uh, uses a variation of the same Greek word that he uses for O here in, in uh, verse 8, and it's uh, aphelio. And uh, in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I am a debtor, and he uses the same Greek word as the word owe here, or uh, that, that, he, that he uses here uh, in, in the passage. And so when Paul, Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And, and where Paul in chapter 1, he pronounced himself to be a debtor uh, to all of mankind in the sense that anyone who uh, has Jesus in their life has the answer to all of the world's greatest problems. And by virtue of having those great needs uh, met in our own lives and, uh, and the need for salvation, 
Paul says, now every person that's been saved owes a debt to let everybody else in the world know about that same gospel that's changed our life, the same offer of salvation that God makes to all, uh, everyone in the world. Nobody can accept that gospel, receive that salvation, and that does not owe a debt then to let someone else know the gospel in the way that someone let us know. And I think that what Paul does here in chapter 13, verse 8, is to just simply apply the same principle to the love of God. In other words, since we as Christians have been the recipients of what is the indescribable, uh, unfailing love of God in our lives, that we now owe it to all others to extend the same love that God has shown us uh, to those others. And this love, of course, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives at the moment that we are are uh, born again, and that love that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives is never ever to be kept to ourselves. It is to flow out into the lives uh, of others. Now, uh, it, it may seem odd where you pick up in chapter 13, and here is Paul uh, talking, as we saw last week, about government and uh, how we are to view government, how we are to navigate government as Christians. And then immediately he, he moves into uh, verse 8 and he begins to talk about the necessity of, of loving uh, one another. And I don't think that Paul is just like you watch Jeopardy and you say, I'll take uh, the category of potpourri and uh, no telling what, you know, uh, the, is, is going to be presented there is the answer and then the question to pose. Like Paul is just hitting all of these random kind of things that are disjointed. I think that what he says in verses 8 through uh, 10 are very much connected with what he's already said in verses 1 through 7 related to human government as we looked at uh, last time. And so uh, Paul follows uh, this up, his instruction on our obligation to government as Christians with this instruction uh, concerning our obligation to love our fellow man. That's the obligation that we uh, bring uh, not to government but just to our fellow man because while we can be uh, tempted to think, and I think we're prone to do this and church history shows it, while we can be tempted to think that the best way to influence culture as Christians, uh, to advance Christianity uh, within a nation is, is the fastest and the easiest way, the most efficient way is to endeavor to do it through government. And the fact of the matter is, is that Paul, as he teaches it here, is that while we should be good citizens, the gospel and the kingdom of God advance not supremely on the, uh, 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 on the basis of government and what can be accomplished through government, but it advances on the basis of two supreme things. And those two supreme things are number one, truth, and then number two, love. By telling people the gospel and, and extending God's invitation of salvation uh, to them, letting them know that God wants them to be saved and, and that's the truth, and then by loving those very same people. It is a very, very powerful uh, combination, very powerful cocktail. 
Now, in this regard, I think it's good to be reminded concerning Jesus' teaching about the danger of the leaven or the doctrine of, uh, the, uh, of, of Herod. And uh, Jesus uh, spoke in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 15. He spoke to his disciples, that's to us as Christians, and he said, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, the leaven of Herod is based in a little bit of a knowledge of what uh, Jesus was addressing there. The Herodians were a, a group of Jews in Jesus' day who supported the Roman-appointed Edomite by the name of Herod, uh, who had been placed by Rome as a governor uh, of Israel within the Roman uh, Empire. And they banded themselves uh, behind Herod, uh, though Jews, and they did so because they thought he was the best hope for uh, fixing the problems that faced the Jews at that time in a uh, Rome-dominated world. And so they were Jews who uh, pinned their hopes for their future, uh, not on religion uh, supremely, not upon God even supremely, but supremely upon government and upon politics. And so they looked to man, they looked uh, uh, to uh, government as the ultimate solution to their problems. I think one of the best ways uh, to describe uh, the leaven of uh, the Herodians is bad politics. Uh, there is good politics and there is bad politics related to uh, the Christian. As you look at how all of this is taught in the Scriptures, for the Christian there's good political involvement and there's bad political involvement. Good political involvement includes voting or using any other right that we have as, as, as citizens within the nation that we live in in order to advance righteousness, in order to advance uh, the kingdom uh, of, of God. And every bit of influence that we've been given, we ought to exercise that as a part of being uh, salt and being light within the nation in which we, we live. Certainly running for political office if the Lord leads, that's another way uh, to engage in good politics. Two of the names that are absolute gold in the Old Testament, uh, Joseph and Daniel. I mean, these guys were simply the best and God took these men and he plugged them into government, uh, not a democracy or a republic. I mean, he put them into uh, so some of the worst kind of corrupted, idol-driven uh, gov government that you could possibly put another human being into. And he put uh, Joseph into the government of Egypt. He put Daniel into the government of Babylon in order for them to be an influence for God in that environment. In good politics, the Christian never ever pins his or her hopes on secular man uh, or on government as the ultimate solution to man's uh, problems. Uh, they never read the newspaper, see all of the problems within the nation, watch the newscasts on television, see all of the problems there, and immediately think at the forefront of their mind that uh, government is going to fix this, that the government is the solution to the, the problems uh, that, uh, th that we have. Most of the problems that we have are all, uh, they are all symptoms of spiritual problems, uh, needs that can only be met by, uh, by God. 
And they never ever think that uh, the health and the advancement of the kingdom of God is somehow dependent upon a secular man or government. Bad politics is when a Christian views man or government as the ultimate solution to our problems. And not only the problems of the nation, but the problems of, of God's people. Bad politics occurs when we view uh, the solution to the problems of our city and, and nation and, and world again to be more political uh, than spiritual. Bad politics occurs when a Christian or a church becomes so identified with politics as a solution to the problems of man that now they're uh, viewed more as a political movement than as a spiritual movement. Bad politics occurs when Christians will hitch their wagon to someone uh, as corrupt and as ungodly as the family of Herod because they have the power to get something done that we feel needs to get done. And bad politics is when a Christian forgets that we are uh, first and supremely a citizen of the kingdom of God, and then very, very secondarily, though thankful for human uh, citizenship, uh, a citizenship, a citizen of this world. And certainly bad politics occurs when a person gets involved in it, and then as a result of it, as a child of God, they become aggressive. Uh, they become uh, desperate uh, in, in their life. They become impatient. They become agitated. They become uh, militant. In other words, uh, they become a person that is nothing like, looks nothing like, sounds nothing like uh, Jesus as we see him in the Bible and, and now no longer representing the nature of Jesus. And when that happens, we realize that something else has become the master passion of our life. We are pinning our hopes on something outside of God, outside of uh, the kingdom of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and that we're being fashioned by uh, the system that we're in, the government that's around us, rather than the Holy Spirit uh, each morning as we start the day. And when Jesus warned, I mean, uh, you look and he, he warns concerning the, 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 the leaven of the Sadducees, liberalism, uh, compromise. Uh, he warns against the, 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 the leaven of the Pharisees, which is legalism. And then you can wonder, how in the world can he even mention the, the leaven of uh, Herod and the Herodians within the same breath? except that the doctrine of Herod is as seductive and as dangerous to us as his disciples and as the church as, as the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I exhort myself in this regard, and I exhort myself this morning first and foremost, but I, but I don't mind having stepped on anybody's toes in this regard if, if it's required for uh, producing perspective. Politics is very fascinating to me, and it is very frustrating to me as well. But when I was in college, uh, one of the early uh, majors that I began to uh, pursue and to m move in that direction was in, in political science. 
And I find that I need these passages in the Bible uh, to help me uh, keep uh, one thing subservient uh, to the other in my own life, and maybe you, you need that as well. Now, as we studied last week, uh, human government has a, a very, very needed place in the world. It has a very, very uh, uh, much a God-given place in this world. But the weakness of human government, and, and indeed it, it, its fatal flaw from the perspective of Christianity, from the perspective of the kingdom of God, is that government is very, very successful in producing an outward conformity of its citizens but it is completely powerless to conform a person inwardly. It is absolutely powerless to win a human heart, uh, to gain the submission of, of a human heart. And, and the submission of a human heart, the winning of a human heart, is what God is all about and what Christianity is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about. We are not about uh, looking to pr produce a religious system in which we produce a general conformity in people uh, that keeps uh, one another safe in interacting with one another. That is the role of, of government. What God is interested in related to a human life is He's interested in the heart. He's interested in the will. He's interested in gaining that part of a person's life because once a person yields that to God, it is effortless then for God to change all of the outward things about their life. And, and Christianity is the polar opposite of how government works and so often how much of uh, religion works. And that is the idea that if we can put enough moral laws, etc., together and get a person to conform outwardly, that ultimately from the outside you can then change their heart. And it doesn't work. And what Christianity does is when a person is born again, God's Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart, into their life, and then changes that uh, place, and then everything as a consequence, as a result, is changed. It is always from the inside out. And so the focus of Christianity is always the heart, gaining the heart, access of the heart, winning the heart of, of individuals. That's the focus uh, of, of the Lord. All of this in terms of the limitations of, of government and, and, uh, and in, in this regard and what, what Christianity uniquely is able to accomplish in a person's life, it reminds me of an old illustration. Perhaps you've heard it, but everyone ought to hear it once in their lifetime, of a five-year-old girl uh, who was having trouble with her mother. Uh, and uh, they were... She was being rebellious and argumentative uh, during the day, and finally her mom had had enough and ordered her to uh, go uh, to the corner and uh, sit down in a chair there and not get up until she was told to. And so she went there, took the chair there, sat down in the chair, and, uh, and was in place, and a few minutes later she called out to her mom, you know, I just want you to know I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And uh, you, can, uh, you, can, you can get outward conformity 
and, uh, and miss, the, miss the inside. Government power uh, can uh, put them in the corner, which is good as far as it goes, but it can never, ever change a heart. That is the focus of, of Christianity, and it's the focus of, uh, of God. And understanding that there is this huge difference between power and true influence in life is very important for us as Christians. Uh, a person can uh, wield tremendous power in a person, another person's life and, and, uh, and never be given a place of true influence in their life. And, and true, a place of true influence in a person's life is not a place you can force yourself into. You cannot legislate yourself into that. It is a place that people voluntarily choose to give to us. And now, related to this passage, and people tend to only give that kind of a place of influence in their life to someone that they believe to be safe, someone that they know loves them, and someone that they know genuinely cares about them. And it is love that opens up the door and prepares a heart then for the truth to come in and impact and, and change uh, a, a, a life. Uh, people, and, and the thing about this, using these great weapons, these great spiritual weapons, effectual weapons of, of truth and love, uh, but specifically here on love, it usually takes a lot of time and sacrifice uh, to gain this kind of a place in a person's life so that they will then uh, stop and they'll listen to the gospel when we share it uh, with them and then they will give it serious consideration because we have shared it with them and they know how much we uh, love them. Again, the two most powerful weapons we possess in this great spiritual warfare, in this battle that's going on for the souls of individual men, women, and, and children is, is truth and, and love. That is, those are the two means by which the kingdom of God and the gospel advances uh, in, in the world. And so sharing the truth of the gospel with people out of a sincere love for them. And this is how God has chosen to do it. Uh, you take Islam, and it, it advances itself by means of a sword and, and by bringing people into a forced subjection to their God if necessary. Uh, and, and then you, you can go into a secular side of things. Communism attempts to do the same thing through the, an atheistic, totalitarian government. And the Herodians and the Philistines and the Sadducees, uh, they all attempt to advance uh, God's kingdom through uh, bad government, through liberalism, again, compromise, through legalism, through hypocrisy. And sometimes, if we're not careful uh, as Christians, we can find ourselves only better by degrees when we want to look to some kind of cheap, easy, non-self-sacrificial way to advance the kingdom of God. 
in order to avoid the very dirty, nitty-gritty work of truth and love and what it requires in a fallen world. But truth and love are the only two things that work. They're the only two things that work in securing a person's will, a position of authority in their life, and, and, and gaining, uh, gaining their heart. And unfortunately, we're tempted to use all other kinds of different means by which to accomplish what God has said can only be accomplished with these weapons. And it's a very rare Christian that will entrust themselves in the lives of their loved ones or the lives of people that are around, around them, entrust uh, the impact of the kingdom of God in that person's life and moving forward related to their salvation to truth and to love. Somehow we use it for a time. It's not instantaneous. It isn't easy. It demands immense self-sacrifice. And then though, so we start to look for a program, a trick, even to government to try and accomplish uh, these things. And they don't work. And I, I, God, God stops me, I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but he stopped me more than once through the years as a Christian, and certainly as a pastor and as a leader. And he just reminds me of what I'm saying here this morning, and that is the two great weapons that we possess that God has chosen for the advancement of the kingdom of God to occur is truth and love. And fewer the number of people who entrust themselves entirely to those things. And, and, and so I speak those things to me. I'm as tempted to, to resort uh, to other things, easier things, quicker things, and, and uh, inferior things as, as quickly as the next person. Love opens a door uh, to people's hearts in a way that nothing else does in the whole world. Now, what does uh, this love that he's talking about look like? And I think a passage like this and others, this passage and others like it, they, they raise a question even within the minds of a sincere uh, hearer. And so we see the command that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're not to owe anyone anything except to love uh, one another. And we think to ourselves, well, okay, I want to pay this debt that I owe to uh, others. But what in the world does this love look like? And it's a great question. And it can be a, a, a source of tremendous frustration for a Christian in trying to get my mind around, what does this look like? What exactly are you asking me to do here, God? And one of the sources of frustration is you and I live in a Western culture. We live in the United States of America where love is almost uniformly represented uh, in terms of emotion. Uh, that it, it begins with emotion and it ends with emotion. And so we look at God calling on us to love our neighbor as ourself, and we're thinking he's calling on us to work up some kind of an emotion for these people. Uh, or uh, that 
or that we wait for him to produce a love for all of these other people in, in our lives, the love that we, we experience and feel toward our husbands or our wives or toward our children or toward our best friends or toward our, our parents. And we think of love very, very one-dimensionally in terms of its expression and that it's always, uh, always emotional, and it's always expressed uh, uh, verbally. That's a, a very shallow view of love, in, but it's the dominant view within, within our, our, uh, our culture. But the, uh, the experience of love and the expression of love in the Bible is, as somebody, as a famous saying related to it, and it's very well put, uh, that the, the love, as the Bible describes it, is more of a verb than it is a noun. It is a noun. It is a thing. Uh, but it, it is also a, a verb. And it is expressed more in doing for people and in how we treat people as opposed to saying, I love them on the basis of the fact that I have a warm and fuzzy feeling uh, f- for them. And, and this, this is the very thing that, that Paul's instruction here, we, we see it here, because he describes it as you look at verse 9, that this love is expressed. He doesn't leave us alone to define it. It's expressed in not committing adultery with somebody else's spouse, uh, not stealing from other people, not lying about them, not coveting what they own. And in all of this, he's quoting from the second tablet of the two tablets of the law of Moses. You may or may not be aware that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments had to do with man's relationship with God, our vertical relationship. And uh, probably on the first tablet of the law. And then the other six commandments have to do with our uh, horizontal relationship between our fellow man. And, and, uh, and now he, he, here he's quoting from the second tablet of the law. And he declares here, as he talks about uh, love being the fulfillment of, of the law... In essence, every one of the 613 commands contained in the law of Moses having to do with our treatment of others is summed up completely in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love is the fulfillment of the law in, in this regard. But the Old Testament law also provides us with a tremendous instruction in terms of, of, of what love is going to look like, a description of that love. Jesus is the ultimate example and expression of love uh, for our lives. Paul goes into that other places, but he, he doesn't hear. He's talking about it just from the basis of, of the law of Moses. You go into the law of Moses, I mean, it's filled with incredibly practical uh, commandments about uh, things like returning an ox or a donkey that has wandered away from a neighbor, uh, even if that neighbor is an enemy. That's an expression of love. Uh, Telling the truth in a court of law, uh, not having a, f- a false weights or measures in business, uh, giving to the poor and those in need, uh, not slandering or uh, backbiting. And again, all of these things are expressions of love completely independent from some dominant emotion, 
within our lives. So God will provide us with a love for people. But it never ends with just that. It's, it's ex- expressed in, in a doing. And again, uh, this uh, love your neighbor is yourself. In other words, because you and I, uh, when he commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, he's saying that because you and I are thoroughly in love with ourselves, you say, oh, no, I don't love myself. Who do you think about more than anyone else in the whole world? Who do you think about constantly? No, we're quite madly in love uh, with ourselves. And so Paul says, listen, I don't have to write you a, you know, a 400-page book on how to love. Everybody knows how to love. We already love ourselves. And now the key is, is to not have it remain there, but now to express that same love toward other people. When we look at other people in the very same, and we put ourselves in their shoes and we say, what would I want uh, someone to do for me? What would I consider to be the loving thing to be done for me in this situation? And then doing that, then that's an expression of, of love in, in the situation. And it might be a bag of groceries, it might be a ride to the doctor's office, it might be a card in the mail, it might be buying somebody a Bible, uh, it might be a word of encouragement or a prayer or a hug. It takes a lot of different forms. And when love has, it, it absolutely has an emotional component uh, in, in our love for others. And when that's there, that's absolutely great, but don't wait for that in terms of expressing love toward other people. It is primarily a matter of the will. Just doing what is best for the other person in this circumstance and know that in doing so, I am loving them. Agape love is the word, agape is the Greek word that's used for the word love here, and, it, and it's the anyway love. But agape love always does what is best for the other person. And sometimes what is best for the other person isn't always uh, deemed as that uh, loving, but it's very loving. It can be expressed in a rebuke. It can be expressed in a correction. It can be expressed in a, a, a kick in the behind in somebody's life. And yet it's the very, very thing, the most important thing that they need in their life, and, and it takes love to be able to uh, demonstrate it to them. And so I close with this the, the passage, a familiar a theme for most of us, a, a, a familiar uh, subject, but it's so easy to know all of this, and, 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 but doing it is an entirely different uh, thing. So to just stop in the privacy of my own heart and to ask, ask yourself, I'll ask myself, who do I love in this way? As a Christian. I mean, there may be some of us in this room, we say, I'm drawing a complete blank. I, I don't, this doesn't characterize a relationship in my life. And, 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 but whatever it might be. So you just stop, think of your neighbors and, and co-workers and fellow students, whoever, the, the whole large group of people that, that you and I are regularly in, engaged in and to just stop and say, who do I show love toward and who don't I show uh, love to? Or, or have I lost as a Christian 
even the realization that I am to love other people. And now it either, it, 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 it either, it either once it characterized my life and does no longer, or I never even knew this, that, that it's been completely lost upon me that God calls me to, to love uh, people in this way, to love them as myself. And then to just stop in, in the power of the Holy Spirit for whatever kind of a gap exists between the reality of where we know personally we are in terms of this commandment and what the Bible actually says, and to say, Lord, I don't want there to be any gap in this way in my life. And sometimes it can be where we knew this once before, it was once a part of our Christian life, and now that gap needs to be reclosed and, and go back to what we once were and to love people that way. Or it's something where uh, it can be a Christian and this is the first time I've ever heard anything like this, but the gap is still there. And to say, God, I, I pray that in just the power of the Holy Spirit and I resolve to obey this commandment of Paul here and, and to express love in all of these relationships within my life with the knowledge that it, it, I, I, when I do it, I am releasing an unbelievably incredible power into the relationship related to the kingdom of God and, and to make that commitment. Now, realize again that, as Paul brings so strongly here, that we are to see the expression of love toward others the command to love one another in this way, we are not allowed as Christians to see that as an, ob uh, as an option. Paul presents it very strongly as an obligation that we owe to everyone. And, and we can never repay this debt of love that, that we owe to others by virtue of the love that we have experienced uh, from, uh, from God. And, and so the importance of stopping and asking ourselves this morning whether we're living as if we no longer owe that, that debt to anyone. It's, it's ceased to be something that I recognize. I, because of my relationship with God, God has called me to infuse love into this life and into this, this situation. And that tap can get turned off in our lives. And you can be a Christian and you're the grump of the family. You're the grump of the workplace. You could be the grump of the church or, or in a home fellowship. And, we, and we've turned the thing off. And no Christian should ever, ever come to a place in our lives where we claim, listen, I've loved enough. I've been a Christian 30 years. I've loved enough. I've paid my debt here. Paul says it's a debt you can't, you can never retire that debt. You don't get to go there in life. I want to go there. <laughs> we don't have the option. He doesn't leave the option for us to do that. We owe that debt. The amazing thing about this, uh, obeying this call to love, is that in this fallen world that we live in, uh, in, in terms of life's highway, if you, if you view, it, view it that way, I mean the love lane is, we have it completely to ourselves as Christians. How much love you see out there? How much love do you see in the world? 
and, and, and interaction with, with one another. Now, everything's pretty complicated. I love to get and the, the manipulations and all the kind of thing. This kind of love, we got this to ourselves. I mean, if we'll exercise it. It, it, it will make us distinctive as a population in the world that is absolutely undeniable uh, to, uh, to anybody that's watching our lives. And, and this thing called love, I mean, it is just such a, a, a powerful, fundamental need in everyone's life. I, again, I, I mentioned the fact that when I was growing up as a boy, I and teenager, and my stepfather did not like music in general. He certainly didn't like rock and roll. And uh, so the little uh, transistor radio up against my ear and uh, KYA and KFRC, and you just think, how can they have one song after another and it's just love and love and love and love and love? And you realize, I mean, very young, the search for love, the need for love, uh, and, and the longing for love that is represented just in one little narrow band of our culture, just in the music, it, 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 not even counting everything else. And what a deep need this is, uh, is for people and how it's being expressed in, in, in them and in song. I always think of Burt Bacharach's What the World Needs Now is Love. And uh, I just listened to this after I got done with the sermon. I went to YouTube and listened to it. Not Burt Bacharach singing it. He sings, but he sings like I do. Not very good. Um, uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I saw who's going to be at the, the Gallo Center. Either he was or he's coming or something. And, but he doesn't sing very well. But because he wrote these and he sings with an, with a, uh, an emotion and an attachment that nobody else has, it's, it's still very pa- powerful. I always think of Paul McCartney and Wings, you know, uh, silly love songs. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it isn't so. I wish I could memorize Scripture uh, in the same way that these silly songs can can come to mind. But it's the recognition of how deep the need is and and, and how powerful uh, a weapon it is in the hands of the Lord in a a sanctified uh, uh, sense. And, 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 of course, that need for love that people are looking for, ultimately it is, it is found in coming to know the Lord. That's the, the, the ultimate love everybody's looking for in life. But so often they'll experience it in us before they'll ever experience it with God. As long as we don't allow love to be supplanted in our lives by other things, by easier things, unmessier things, uh, lesser things. Love is the hardest thing in the world to resist. I don't say that it can't be resisted. It can be. But if it's resisted by others in our lives, and we know that nothing else would be as powerful as this related to their lives. And so, if love has been buried in any of our lives this morning by selfishness, or by self-protectiveness, that's natural, uh, by uh, a one-sided relationship, or, or whatever the reason that we, that we have taken and sheathed this great sword, this great uh, weapon of love, especially combined with, with truth, 
then the importance this morning of, of freshly just stopping either in, in, this morning before you leave this place or taking a walk this afternoon and say, Lord, I'm either very close to this and want to be closer or I'm so far away from this as a reality in my life, but I want to commit to this now, marking my life as a Christian and, and for your glory and for the good of the people around me. I want everybody to be saved and have the same life that that we enjoy. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, as you are well aware in a way that we are rarely aware, there are so many things in the course of life that can happen to us that cause us to turn that spigot of of the flow of love out of our lives off. can be buried under life experience, buried under hurt, buried under betrayal, buried under selfishness in our culture, buried under so many things. And we thank you for the reminder of how powerful this thing called love is in the world, how distinctive it is, and how powerful it is in your hands. And this morning, under the, the beauty of the weight and the instruction of your word, we commit to turning back once again to a full commitment to this in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives to be able to do this, and that you would use it, Lord, to open up hearts to us as Christians that will never be opened up in the same way by any other population in the world, that people might be saved and enjoy the life and the quality of life and the salvation and blessings that we do as Christians, that this might be their portion as well. And we pray these things, we ask these things, we commit to you, Lord, in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.